26. 2 Timothy 2, 14-26. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who are his. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. They will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. So, remember and suffer are the big themes we started last week. Um, And they're the way that we might think about putting all the stuff into action from 1 Timothy uh, that uh, came to life, I don't know, the, instead of just saying, I don't know if Paul wrote this, so let's say what the Deutero-Pauline tradition, which is a more convenient way of doing it. But the end of 1 Timothy, at least as we walk through it and the kind of themes in Titus were about this idea of seeing the radically expansive character of God's grace and uh, being thankful for it. And here, uh, although written a, li- a bit later, and like I talked about last week, uh, you know, different circumstances than the earlier letters. Um, There's a kind of instruction for a way of thinking about how exactly we remember what Jesus Christ has done for us and how exactly we live out our lives in the light of that grace. So, you know, last week I made this kind of big deal about Paul sitting in chains in Rome. Remember that? And like, but, you know, because the Greeks uh, love to think about memory as Uh, going on a walk in your mind. Uh, Paul had this kind of confidence that even though he was in chain, it's too too bad Cal's not here to quote Kanye, Jesus walks even when Paul is rendered immobile because the word has a power and a function that transforms us, that changes us, that that moves the world. So I'm going to start with that little hinge from the end of last week. Uh, I did 14 last week, but just to remind you, if you don't have your Bible open, 14, keep reminding God's people of these things. Now, you've heard me say it a bunch of times, but just for the sake of it, let me say it one more time. Timothy's point, the point behind Titus, but Timothy's point in both letters is that if you see the mystery of Christ, if you internalize the mystery of Christ, if you remember it, you go on a walk with it, if you're thankful for what God has done in it, you have, I think, invoked the whole of the gospel. 
presuming your understanding of grace is sufficiently broad, right? If your understanding of grace is sufficiently broad that you see the creation of the universe, you see the idea that we talked about a ton in the earlier pastoral letters that God specifically desired you, imagined you, loves you. If you see that even your existence is a product of uh, God's decision and God's will and that everything that exists exists, didn't have to exist, would, you know, not, there's no, I don't know, what do you call it? Like, uh, there's no uh, entitlement to exist, but instead God has given us all the possibility of and, and the beauty of the, not only existence, but the experiences that go with it. So God's created the universe, God's created you, God has given you existence, God has created the grounds for existence. And in addition to all that, as if it weren't enough, if your understanding of grace is sufficiently broad, you see that God died and rose again to redeem you, not only so that you don't have to face the penalty of death, but so you, like, so you can live differently. So you can bet, be set free to, uh, to love. And so that, that keep reminding God's people of these things is one of the most consistent charges that the Deuteropauline tradition has, has to the church. And that's why it's so important, especially when times are tough, which last week, you know, where there's a lot of folks in the church that are going through some difficult times. There's, there's a lot, uh, you know, it's, it's especially important to keep reminding each other of the grace and the beauty and the power of the mystery of Christ. So verse 14 concludes by saying what? Warn them, that is God's people, against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. That's a tough one for me because I love quarreling about words. (laughs) I even make a living out of it. Uh, But I I suppose that a lot of us love quarreling about words in, in, in some way. Although, you know, when you do it for work, you can see the virtues of not doing it when you're home. But I digress. And I have a lot of just like... Beth jokes that are built in here because she's not here, so I really need to, you know, just go crazy on them. The uh, the point of the warning here, though, is not to say don't argue with people. That's that's not what this passage is is saying. The word for quarrel, you ready? Uh, learn a new uh, compound Greek word, logomachain. So you all know the word logos, word, reason, order, right? Machain means like to fight, to struggle over concepts. It has the same root word, uh, or it ha- is related in its kind of root word family to the word machis, the word for strength, like force. And so logomachain is kind of to reason by force. Logomachain is to reason and see that the point of argument is uh, to overcome, to beat the other person, to win. You know, sitting in the front, this evil debater here, constantly striving to struggle and, and win over other people with, with words. But saying no to logomachain doesn't mean, hey, don't talk about or argue about things that are important. Saying no to logomachain means something like, don't turn the process of reasoning into... Uh, struggle about force or strength. It means that when we argue, we should argue on the basis of reasons and for the good of the other person. Because remember, like all that stuff about instruction, remember that thing, Alenkos? It was to ask questions of the other person that kind of caused them to face difficult things and make decisions for themselves. Like this is not, especially coming out of a, you know, strongly Jewish culture, an injunction to uh, 
not exchange words and say sharp things. This isn't about being, even being civil. This is about the idea that when you're involved in discussion with other folks about the character of the Logos, you shouldn't make it about a winner and a loser and make it simply about force, but instead, and, and why? Well, Paul says it, because when you, you know, get caught up in a debating contest to win on the force of your own argumentative excellence, you're going to draw other people in, and we've all seen the dynamic that happens when two people are fighting to win because they think their point is awesome and they're better at debate and yada, 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 and all kinds escalate. The point that the Deutero-Pauline tradition is making here is to introduce an idea that's just really elaborate and beautiful metaphor written into this part of the, of the letter that I don't think our translation for today nails like it might. But the starting point of it is, let's avoid logomachen. Let's avoid making the focus of our argument the person or the power of the arguer as opposed to the importance, the beauty, the, uh, the, the persuasive character of the logos itself. That's the, that's the key distinction there. Don't, don't make arguing about you. Don't make quarreling about you. Don't try and win on the basis of, of force. But instead, when we argue, when we talk, when we deliberate together, all those things, the point is that logos, if it means both word and argument and uh, uh, pattern, and person, because it means all those things in the Bible, that when we talk to each other, we should make that word, that pattern, those reasons, and that person the focus. And the more we think that arguments are about ourselves, or about justifying ourselves, the less we focus on the kind of truth or person or pattern, the thing that argument, communication, all that stuff is supposed to carry or bear. Because look, if the logos means anything, if it means anything, it kind of has to mean that it's something that is a pattern or reason that is true and exists independent of our ability to see it or what we think about it. If the Logos means anything, it has to be something that has its own kind of intrinsic value. And of course, the focus on the person of Christ is about saying, and the reason why it is that in the beauty of the Christian understanding of the Incarnation, instead of just saying we have a doctrine... The truth is not a doctrine. If I've said it once, I've said that a million times. The truth is a person. I am the way, the truth, and the light. So it's not something that we need to like bear, or, you know, that we need to like make up or convince people of as much or craft a better argument for or create the most uh, flowery rhetoric for. Instead, the point of this argument about rejecting arguments is the idea that we need to be bearers of, carriers of the logos, and it's not our own excellence or cleverness or ability to say things that is what wins people to the Logos. It is the character and the excellence and the beauty and the truth and the kalos and all those things of the Logos itself. We don't make the truth. We don't create it in argument. We carry it or we bear it. That's the beginning of this metaphor, which I just, beautiful. Being a vessel. The goal is to be a vessel. Verse 15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, it is not, I mean, what clearer way could you say it? It's not your own power that gives an argument rooted in the Logos. It's strength, it's veracity, it's persuasive character. What are we supposed to do if we want to be good bearers of our vessels for that argument? We're supposed to present ourselves to God as someone who is approved by or someone who is carrying the Logos, the word, the, the reasons, the power of Jesus Christ within them. 
And it's powerful, not because of our own excellence, but why? It's powerful because it's an extension of the fundamental patterns built into the universe by God, God's self. Don't get me wrong. Like, it is fun to, con- I, it is awfully, <laughs> I shouldn't say this out loud. It is awfully fun to convince people of things that are totally outrageous. Okay? <laughs> awfully, hey, start a church. It'll be easy. But, like, the thing is, and I think what this aims at here is the idea that um, there's, there is when we try and kind of argue on the merits of our own argumentative powers or powers of persuasion, that we are not correctly handling the word of truth. Because the word of truth is the thing that matters. The logos is the thing that matters. Jesus is the thing that matters. And just to kind of, I'll, I'll tie together the elements of the metaphor in a second, but uh, there's a, it's an art, this vessel metaphor is an arts and crafts metaphor. So ancient Middle Eastern arts and crafts practices, I guess. The word for uh, correctly handle, okay? There's perfectly good words for correct or accurate. There's perfectly good words for handle, but the, um, the word that's used here is a word that is borrowed from carpentry. And the word for correctly handle literally means to cut straight. It, 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 it's talking about the idea that in a culture where people would have thought about argument as a kind of craftsmanship because they're all deeply steeped in the traditions of, of rhetoric, the, the, the measure here of handling the truth well is the idea that you cut it straight, that you carry or you'd bury it or bear it, you'd be an advocate for it. It's not our job to polish it up or to make it acceptable. It's our job simply to say the thing that God has laid on our hearts or put in scripture or directed the church to do. And so I don't know anything about this kind of Hymenaeus and Philetus, but whatever, whatever they're doing, their way of teaching and arguing people with people spreads like gangrene. They've got a vision of uh, what the faith is supposed to be like that was founded in the specific disagreement about the character of the resurrection. And apparently they were doing it in a way that made it kind of about them and about their doctrinal insight. And anyway, 16 through 18 say what? Avoid this kind of godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth, they say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. But, but, that, but that's the point. When we make ourselves in our way of arguing the focus at the expense of what we're supposed to be vessels for, carrying or bearing, well, that, that's the thing that not only makes us depart, but uh, induces others to depart from the truth. But there's a better way. And the better way, uh, 17 through, uh, well, I don't know, I'm not, actually 19, 20, I'm going to talk about it a, a little bit. But the, the better way is to stand on the foundation of God, a very Logos-type metaphor, right? It's the thing that is underneath us and that holds us up. And uh, it, it, it's a way of thinking about carrying, a, what is a foundation, but something that carries or bears something. The foundation is firm. That's an important point in 19, but there's another thing that is really important to pay attention to. That foundation is also what? Not only is it firm, but it is sealed with an inscription. So 19 says, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So here's that beautiful metaphor I was talking about that ties together uh, craftsmanship and sealing. Verse 20. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. 
Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Anybody have a different translation of the term articles in verse 20? Utensils, better. Vessels, yes. Tamsin, whatever you're reading, I give a A plus to. Here's why, and here's why. So, large houses would have been distinguished by more than just their size. We've talked about this, right? Like, we've talked about the idea that large houses were, I don't know, there were places where you invited people over and had parties and potentially you, you worshipped. And in the ancient Middle East, what made you a truly large house was not just that you had a lot of rooms and you might add, you know, slaves or you had your kind of domestic economy and you had some economic impact and it was run by a, I don't know, distinguished guy in a nice Oxford who wore a bow tie every once in a while and directed everybody around the miles, go do this. But the point is that those large houses would have been these kind of social sites where people gathered. And um, I don't know, if you, if you look at the, uh, the, and they gather for big dinners mostly was the big thing. Remember how we talked about the kind of the, the party and the invitation to the party. But like, if you were a large enough house to have these parties and to have all the stuff that made you a prominent house in the community, it's clear that you had some stuff that was made out of gold and silver. And that's what big houses do, I guess. And I cannot tell you how many commentaries I read that were like, this is about you being gold and silver. Like, don't be clay. Don't be wood. Be those really special gold and silver utensils or tools or articles or whatever the thing is. But like Chamson's translation says, it's not talking about gold and silver utensils or articles. It's talking about vessels. It's talking about gold and silver vessels. So there's, in a large house, there are vessels of gold and silver also some of wooden clay, some are for special purposes, some are for common use. Because the large house had the stuff that was made of gold and silver, we, like I said, tend to think, oh, well, that's, this is us being, uh, you know, suggested that we uh, are, are gold and silver uh, articles and or utensils, but gold and silver vessels, that's a totally different thing altogether. Anybody got a gold or silver vessel that they you have? I mean, like, uh, we have, a, we have a, a sterling silver, not real silver, this, you know, gravy boat. Gold, anybody? Anybody in here got, like, a gold gravy <laughs> boat or, or serving bowl? Okay, but you never use it, okay? Like, it sits on a shelf in the... It reminds me of China, like, when Beth and I... Talk about, like, useless, quarrelsome stuff. When Beth and I were registering for our wedding, we had this... We must have argued for two hours about China. And I don't have like a particular position on China, but I did for some reason that day. Like this, this is it. We need this. And anyway, it was a long fight. The, and, and the point is for all the talking and all the work that we put into China, like I think we've used it twice, you know? Like no one ever uses it. And the, and the gold and silver vessel, they're, they're, they were like that in the, in the household in antiquity. It's not like you're like, hey, we're going to have church over tonight, we're going to have a dinner, and then we're going to drink some wine, and then we're going to talk, and then we're going to worship, and then we're going to hear a sermon. By the way, babe, make sure that the gold pitcher <laughs> is, is clean so we can lay it out on the table. Those, those were kind of useless. And so I, I, don't, I don't think that the passage is asking us to be gold and silver vessels. I think the passage is saying something like this. The question is, what kind of clay or wood vessel are you? What kind of clay or wood vessel are you? Some clay or wood vessels 
were used for utterly regular things. Like you'd use a simple clay or wood vessel to, I don't know, hold cooking ingredients. I just, you know, maybe this is insight on me. Like if I thought about the most generic dishonorable use of a clay or wooden vessel in ancient in antiquity, I would have thought about a chamber pot basically. But like, you know, gold and silver had this other quality that, you know, besides not being very practical, that made them not quite as preferable for using at these big parties because, you know, you could cast gold or silver, that'd be awfully expensive, but it's not like they had awesome engraving tools for gold and and silver like we might these days. And so if you were at a party at one of these big houses and let's say you grew incredible olives or your family had some awesome dish that you made, the way that you would have used that uh, nice wood or clay dish is you would have inscribed your family's name on it. You'd inscribe your family's name or your family seal on it and you'd take your olives that were like your favorite olives and you'd lay them in the middle of the table and so for your guests of honor you'd say, hey, we've got our family wooden or clay bowl that was handcrafted and we've put in it our most beautiful artisanal olives and we just you know, really hope that you enjoy them. The honorable clay or wooden vessel was the one, make the connection to two, pre, two three verses previous, that had the seal of the family and the master on. And it carried the thing that was the most beautiful or important or delicious or nutritious thing that the family had to offer. And so the, 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 the one, the honorable use, the honorable special use of any of these things is not the honorable special use of the gold or silver stuff. That stuff just kind of sits on the shelf. And of course, you're not going to put your family's awesome olives in a chamber pot, what you're going to do is you're going to put them in a clay or wood pot that has your family's seal engraved on it. And here's the thing, your family's seal approves of it, but your guests aren't going to be like, man, that's the greatest pot. They're going to be like, dang, those olives were delicious. Now think about that metaphor. Think about that metaphor for a moment and what it means for us. It helps us understand why exactly you want to be the type of clay or wood pot that is sealed with God's seal and filled with the things that God would like to extend to the world in hospitality. You wouldn't name your chamber pot. You don't put your family seal on your chamber pot. Although, if I had a chamber pot, I might put an enemy family (laughs) seal on it, but that's a different question altogether. Like, the point of 21, those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes made holy and useful to the master and prepared to do any good work, is that the wooden and clay vessels that had the family name and family seal called uh, carved on them that also bore some token of hospitality that the family was particularly proud of, those were the ones that got the place of honor at the party. They were useful. They bore the seal of the family and they had those delicious olives. And when someone would reach in, they'd notice the seal, but they'd love the olives. It's not about being a silver or gold vessel. It's not about being a chamber pot. It's about being the kind of wooden or clay vessel upon which God can strike God's seal and in which you carry the beauty of, the power of, the delicious and nutritious character of the gospel. And in doing so, it allows us to understand our lives differently, I think, because it's not about us. It's not if we're gold or if we're wood or clay. We are clay or wood, but we want to be the kind of clay or wood. We want to be the kind of materials that are pliable enough 
to have God's seal stamped into us so that what? So that we can carry or bear or be vessels of, I don't know, the family's most special gravy or the olives or I'm getting hungry talking or the sauce or whatever the thing is. You are called to be a vessel that is purified, that is marked by the master of the house and that carries or bears the most beautiful truths that can be served. That's the goal for being a Christian. The point of the vessel metaphor and what makes it the flip side of the arguing by force metaphor is that your job is not to be the star. Your job is to be the most useful vessel possible inscribed with the name of your master. That's it. Your job is to contain within yourself the beauty of and the power of the logos. Your job is to demonstrate as a representative exemplar that the fruit that you bear is sealed by and is validated by the goodness and the glory of God's house. And a vessel, a good vessel, if vessels understand things, I don't think they do, but maybe they're ascension vessels, but a good vessel understands that though they are sealed with the family name, the true thing that makes it a vessel of honor is what it carries. And sure, it's simple clay or wood, but it's made noble by the seal or sign or signature on it, and it bears, that it bears, and it is powerful, and it is transformative, and it does the thing that it does because it contains the beautiful mystery of Christ within it. That's why you're supposed to be a honored wooden or clay vessel marked with a signature. Verse 22, flee the evils of desire of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish or stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone able to teach not resentful opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to the knowledge of truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil that is who has taken him captive to do his will remember that stuff about the trap of the devil the snare we talked about it as the snare in the other instance and the kind of point I made about the snare was the idea that what's true what's truly insidious about the snare is that it uses your own hunger your own desire your own needs your own whatever it, that you want to get i don't know in that case the bird to a place where you know you cut caught the seal around it and you had a delicious dinner but the point of repeatedly bringing up the trap of the devil which by my count this is the third or fourth time that the trap of the devil has been mentioned in the pastoral letters is in each instance the trap of the devil is the idea that somehow you or your own excellence or your pride in yourself are more important than the logos that you bear. And the instruction here is to say that if you want to be clay or wood that has borne on it the seal of God, the most important thing to do is to bear that beautiful fruit and to see it as standing on its own, to see it as being the thing that is not only nourishing, but is delicious and that is beautiful and that draws people in and that invites them to the hospitality that is the kingdom of God and to the hospitality that is God's table. And the thing that makes a good pot different from a bad pot, I guess, in that metaphor, is that the good pot sees that the seal is the important thing and what it carries is the important thing. And so it tends to, I don't know, make it less about itself and more about what it carries in the trap of the devil has consistently been in these letters about affirming our own goodness, our own excellence, and we do it at the power and the expense of 
the goodness of the gospel and the goodness of Christ and the power of the Logos, which stands on its own because it's ordered the universe and been extended to us in grace. So at least as I read this passage, and believe me, there are lots of people who think I'm wrong about this if you read, uh, if the commentary's out there, the point is not to be idolatrous or useless gold or silver. The point is not to be the chamber pot. The point is to be a wooden vessel or a clay vessel that is pliable enough to have God's seal stamped onto it and that carries the beauty of, that bears the fruit of, that is filled with and overflowing with the word of grace so that those who encounter it can encounter him. So that those who encounter it can encounter the beauty and the truth and the power of the Logos. And if we focus on what we know or what we can convince others, we'll be dragged into stupid and foolish arguments. But if we understand what it means to be a good Christian, what it means to be a good Christian is to be a vessel. And good vessels carry and they signify, but good vessels don't change the character of the thing that they contain a good vessel instead makes it accessible to and serves it, it frees people from the devil's trap because it invites them to taste and to eat and to be nourished by and to be uplifted by and to be edified by and to encounter the beauty of the hospitality that is extended to us in the house of God. Amen.